invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, and turn back to that James passage that we read a little earlier. In way of review, as Dave mentioned, talked about hearing and doing the Word of God. James says that the Bible is like a mirror. And there's a lot of fictional mirrors that you're probably aware of. The first one that came to my mind, and you can tell me what's, what does it come from. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Comes from? Snow White, yes, and the Evil Queen. Does anybody, you get extra bonus points. I don't know what it'll go toward, but do you know what the Evil Queen's name is? See, you're going to learn something today in church. Grim Hilda. See, you have me to thank for that. Beauty and the Beast had the enchanted mirror. So the first mirror on the wall, you could see who was the fairest of them all, right? Second one, the enchanted, Beauty and the Beast, you could see whatever you want. Remember when Belle held it in her hand? She wanted to see what was wrong with her dad. You could see whatever you wanted with that mirror. The Lord of the Rings has the mirror of Gladriel, and it's a water reflection mirror. And you could see the future and all the things that were going to happen. Through the looking glass, Alice in Wonderland. The looking glass is the old way of saying a mirror. I and mean, she could look into that mirror and she can see into a, literally another world. Um, those fictional mirrors are great. You can see a lot of different things with them. But the Bible is a non-fictional mirror. And what it does is allow you to see yourself. So you look into the Bible and you see God and then you see yourself. And that's important because when you go to the Bible, it always tells you what to do, but it tells you before that who you are. You have to know who you are if you're going to know what to do. It shows you your condition before it helps you with your conduct. So if you want to live the Christian life, James says this, you have to look in the Bible and you have to keep looking in the Bible and keep looking in the mirror so that you can see your reflection and how it, if it reflects God or not and then make the appropriate changes. So as you continually look in it, it shows you who you are and what you need to be a doer of the Word of God. In other words, a radical change of who you are must come before what you do. So let me tell you this. I say all that because the gospel of Jesus, being a Christian, being born again, being saved, having a nonfiction faith, however you want to say it, is not simply someone saying, hey, I think I'm going to try harder to be good this year. It's not about religious trying harder to be good. It's about recognizing that the death of Jesus and his resurrection has to happen and you have to accept it and believe in it and trust in it in order for him to come into your life and make you good, see? And once he has made you good, then you can do good. God is not impressed with you doing good apart from beforehand being made good by his riches of his grace. So true religion... In true religion, being always precedes doing, and a true Christian has both of them in that order. James, if you're not aware of it, the writer of our epistle was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was pastoring literally the very first church ever, and it was in Jerusalem, and he had a lot of people coming to his church, and he wanted to let them know for sure because he wasn't sure that they knew about Jesus and all that he said and what he was about and what salvation and being part of the kingdom was. And so he said, hey, I want to tell you, this is what a nonfiction, a real faith looks like, hear me, and what it does not look like. So he wants to say to them, 
this is Christian faith is something that being and doing, hearing and doing go together. And here's what it looks like. We've seen that. And here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like partiality. It doesn't look like showing favoritism. See, chapter 2 has the word faith in it more than any other chapter in all of James. I mean, there are 13 times in James, and 12 out of those are in chapter 2. He says chapter 1, 5, verse 1, 5, 14, 17, 18, 20, 22, 24. 20. I mean, over and over again, he's talking about faith because he wants us to leave this chapter when it's done to be able to say with confidence, I have a real faith, a true religion, James 1, 26 and 7. I have a real faith in Jesus Christ, and here's what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. And so we come to our text in verses 1 through 7, and he breaks it up into two little segments, and they're marked off by the same little, what I call, a family phrase. Seems like a little loud, my friend, maybe. And then verse 1 has it. Look at your text. It says, my brethren. And then later on, down in verse 5, he says, my beloved brethren. So what he wants to say is this. This is the family. If you're part of God's family and you've been born again and you're a child of God, you've been adopted as Jesus' child, here's what's going to be true of you. Here's a mark, a family trait of being a Christian. You don't show partiality. And so he's going to come and challenge his family members this morning. And if you're part of that, that's you. And he's going to do it with this little rhetorical device. He's going to say, Four little rhetorical questions, and you know, rhetorical question, it, it assumes that you're going to know the answer. So he's going to ask some questions, and sometimes he's going to assume that you know the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is yes. For example, well, you could say this, is Pastor Dave our youngest pastor? And the rhetorical answer would be no. But the other side, is Pastor Dave the oldest pastor? And the rhetorical answer would be Yes, because you know that he is ancient. <laughs> so that's how rhetorical questions work. See, he's not here today, and there's not one thing he can do about it. Right? So here's what, here's what James is saying as he asks these four questions. Can you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and be partial toward other people? And the answer is no, you can't. So here's the idea today. Partiality is completely incompatible with a nonfiction faith. You cannot be a Christian and practice favoritism. James is going to give us two reasons why that kind of life, that partiality life, is incompatible with Christianity. Here's what he says. There are two of them. It's incompatible because of who Jesus is and who God has chosen. And we're going to unpack them one at a time this morning and the time we have left. So let's look at them. First one, partiality is incompatible because of who Jesus is. Verse one reads, my brothers, here's the command. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? The Lord of glory. Now literally, let me tell you, if you put the Greek together and, and, and said it in English exactly how it's written, here's what it would say. Not, because it begins with not, not with partiality of any kind, must you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory? Who is the glory? Now, remember what I said? Christians who hear God's word and truly know the Lord are doers, and they're not doers. They're not doing things that are not in keeping with who Jesus is. And one of those things is partiality. And so here's what he says. Because of who Jesus is, you can't be partial. Who is he? He is the Lord of glory. 
who is the glory. Why does he say that? Because I thought in my study this week, he could have said, because Jesus is the love of God, and he is. He is love. He could have said, because Jesus, he is salvation, and that would be so true. But he doesn't say either one of those in a myriad of other choices. Why does he say that the reason we can't be partial is because of who Jesus is? He is the glory. He is the glory. Now, when you think of glory, if you're like most people, you'll think of shining brilliance and some sort of light or radiance issuing out from God. And that's true that that is one symbol of it. But what the word means, and it comes from a Hebrew Old Testament word, kabod, and it means to literally be heavy. And what the word means, or what its significance is, it's telling you about how important you are. It's telling you how much you matter, how much influence you have. We say it this way today in America, oh, that person carries a lot of weight around here, and we're not talking about their physique. We're talking about their influence. They have a position. They have power, right? You can say, someone says, you know, they say, wow, you're going to be the heavy today. In other words, because you're an authority, you're going to have to go tell them what they don't want to hear. So we use weight and heavy. That Why? Because that's about your position. You matter in this company. You have influence. You have power, see. And so he gives an illustration in the text. Look at verses 2 through 4 about a rich guy who comes into their assembly, now, this is the only, guys out in the foyer, this is our only verse in the Bible that I know of that talk about ushers. Ready? Because you're bringing some guy into church, in the service, right? And he says, the rich guy comes in, and literally the Bible says, he is gold-fingered. That is the literal word. So he has got rings mostly on every finger, they're gold, and he's wearing literally luxurious clothes. So he has got, you know, you know, Gucci, whatever, suits on. He's got diamond and gold rings all over the place. He walks in, and everybody knows the moment you see this guy dressed to the T, I mean, he is wealthy. There is no doubt about it. So what the ushers do, right, they say, hey, you go down there and sit in the front. You get as close to the speaker as you can, and when you sit in the front, you know what that means? Everybody else who's in the back sees how rich this guy is and how important he is. On the other hand, the poor guy comes in, now, he shows his glory. See, the rich man showed his glory by the rings he wore and the clothes he had. The poor man comes in in the illustration, and he also shows his glory, or maybe better, his lack of glory, right? He doesn't have, they, there's no mention of any rings on his finger because he doesn't have any, and he doesn't have luxurious clothes. But his clothes are descri described by this word, defiled. They're dirty. It's basically wearing his work clothes to church. He's not probably smelling too good, and he doesn't have any of the same appearance as the rich guy. And so the usher said, hey, buddy, um, why don't you just go over and stand in the corner? And to sit at my feet means to be in a place of submission. Just do what I'd say. Go over there and stand. You know why? Because their glory is measured by the externals and how important they are. See, the rich man, he's got a lot of weight. He carries a lot of weight, a lot of glory because of what he has. But the poor man doesn't have any glory. He's not influential. He doesn't carry any weight. And that's how he's treated. He's treated as inconsequential. It's basically saying to him, you really don't matter. See, James is saying to them in his day and to us today that, see, in order to see the glory of the rich man and the poor man 
correctly, you have to first see God's glory. So you have to say, how does God, who has all glory, display it? How does God use his glory? And the answer is Jesus, who is the glory. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his very nature. When you look at Jesus, you see God. John 14, 9, Thomas said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, have you been so long with me, Thomas? Because if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus' glory is exactly the glory of God. And we can say without hesitation this morning that Jesus doesn't just show us God's glory, he is God's glory, see? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing the very glory of God. And may I say this morning, there has never been a greater glory than that. There has never been a more important person in all of history than Jesus. There has never been a more influential person on this planet than the Lord of glory. There has never been someone who carried more weight, more value, more importance in the universe than Jesus. But what did he do with it? What did this person who is the glory do with all of it? He gave it away. He gave it away. And he gave it away for us. He didn't give away his deity. He didn't stop becoming God or was God. But he gave away all of the glory that was expressed and demonstrated it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might be rich. Jesus had riches, but what did he do with his riches? He gave them up. He had the glory, he had the power, he had the influence, he had the position, and he gave them all up to become poor. He went from this glory down to no glory. Why? For you and for me, it says. John 17, 5, Jesus prays the prayer on the night before he would be crucified, and he says, Father, glorify me in your presence, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In other words, here's what he's saying. God, give me back the glory that I used. Now, why does he have to ask for the glory back? Because he had given it up. Not being God, but all the demonstration, all the display of it. See, when you looked at Jesus, he didn't look like God on the Mount of Transfiguration, you see. it. But Jesus says, listen, I gave up all of that for you. So when James says... Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus. That's the faith. The faith is not holding on to the glory, but giving it up. Not judging people and looking at people externally by the glory they have on the outside, but looking at people about the glory that God has given them on the inside. Jesus says, this is what it means to have my faith. To have a glory that you let go and give up for the benefit of others. So when they say to the rich man, go sit down here, you know what they're doing? They're not seeing what he's like on the inside. All they care is about the weight and the glory he has on the outside. 
And when they tell the poor man to sit in the corner, they don't see that he, that he has such glory on the inside. He has nothing on the outside. In other words, they're not measuring people or seeing people like Jesus would see them. A couple years ago, maybe three years ago, I took a tour with some of my family, and we went through Philadelphia Historic Tour. I don't know if you've ever gone on that. I mean, I had been here for 20-some years. I never even did any of those Philadelphia things. And I finally decided we were going to do some of those. And so one of the highlights for me was the Revolutionary Church, um, Christ Church. If you go downtown, you'll see it. When you go in there, it's absolutely beautiful to this day. They were doing actually some restoration to the outside of it. But when you walk down it, you'll see in the very middle aisle toward the front um, a number of pews. And back in the day, in in the days of Revolutionary War and Puritans, they had pew, and they locked the pews. They had little arms that came down, and you couldn't just sit anywhere when you came. You come in here and sit everywhere, anywhere you want. That wasn't how it was back in those days. I mean, you were common folk. You could sit anywhere you want, which is usually way in the back. It's so funny. Everyone there wanted to sit in the front, and now everyone here wants to sit in the back. But they, they, but the arms went down. And the reason was, and the advertisement was, come sit in the pew that George Washington sat in. Come sit in the pew that Ben Franklin sat in. Now, that's kind of weird because Ben Franklin wasn't even a Christian. He was a deist at best. Come sit in the pew that Betsy Ross sat in. They they all went to this church and a number of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And you can walk down, and there was some sections on the middle rows, like where Dennis is forward. They were all marked off. And they had an arm on them, and you couldn't sit in there. Now, if Ben Franklin wasn't at the church that day, you couldn't sit in his pew because he had paid for that. He was somebody. Now, George Washington sat in his pew. If he was gone for months, you weren't sitting in George's pew, right? That was his pew because of who he was. See, imagine that. We're thinking about church. We're having the pastor's pews over here and the deacon's pew. No, we're not. That would be crazy. Why? Because that would show partiality. It would show, hey, now you can sit here, but you can sit there, right? Let's see, that may have been true back then, but that can't be true in our relationships at Faith Baptist Church. You know what James says? When you do that, look at the text. He says, you sit in a good place or stand over there. Verse 4, here's the rhetorical question. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not done? And the rhetorical answer is yes. Yes, you have. When you start making distinctions, which means to, to uh, make a distinction between two things, here's what he says. Don't you become judges with evil thoughts? You start thinking that you're better than other people. You start thinking that you're superior to other th- people. And you know what Jesus calls that? Evil thinking. Evil thinking. Instead of using God's judgment that he's going to have of you, you use your judgment of other people. And let me tell you this. Next week, in chapter 5, you're going to see two passages that God is so serious about this that he says, you better be warned because if you start doing this in my church, I'm going to judge you for it. Seriously judge you for it. So making discriminations are this. Wrong discriminations come from wrong ways of thinking, evil thoughts. And because we think like People who don't know God. Let me give you an example. We already have the rich and poor example. That somehow we give preferential treatment to the people who drive certain cars, live in certain neighbors. I mean, look at the internet. People who have the most say and people listen to them, in my opinion at least, should not have any say and no one should listen to them. But you know why they do? Because they can play a sport. 
or because they are in Hollywood making movies or they have a lot of money or they may be a senator with position and power. You know why? Because people say that's more important. But by the vast majority of them, they don't speak truth. But we value them. And we distinguish and we distinguish. See, it's the have and have nots. And we listen to them because of what they have. It's a wrong discrimination based on wrong thinking. Perhaps the most noted one in recent times, if not even farther along, obviously, is black and white or differences between skin color. And we discriminate between people and we look at them differently and we see them different. Why? Because of, they're different than us, whether they're white or they're black or they're Hispanic or they're Asian or they're Indian. See, see, we look at people differently and we distinguish. Why? Because of what they look like. And all that we're doing is seeing the externals. We're not seeing the internals. We see that they either have glory or they don't have glory, but not that they know the Lord of glory. And we make huge differences because we don't think right about it. We make distinctions between who are educated and non-educated. So not only what they have, what they look like, but we distinguish people by what they know or don't know. We won't fellowship with people and we get really angry at people and they come to our church and we're, we're done talking to them and the reason is we distinguish and we make this distinction between Republican and Democrat. So it's financial ones, racial ones, social ones, political ones. See, we make these distinctions and we turn people away and we get really upset with them and all that, you know why? Because we're making distinctions and we're looking at people on the outside and the externals of those things often and it even happens in church. Some people get better treatment because they have more clout at church. They have more position. They have more power. They've been here longer. And they think that that means that they have more say. But in the Christ community, see, people are not more or less valued. They're not more or less important. They're not more or less anything because of who they are, rather but because of whose they are. They are those who belong to Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. So here's what he says in the first four verses. Partiality is incompatible with true Christianity because... It is completely not in keeping with who Jesus is. He is a God who had all the glory and gave it away. And when you hold on to yours, you can't hold on to your glory and hold on to Jesus and the faith at the same time. But he gives us a second reason in verses 5 through 7. Partiality is incompatible also because of whom God has chosen. Verse 5 says, listen. Now he adds, my beloved brothers, because he's going to say something really, really strong, and he doesn't want them to forget that when I'm talking strong to you, I still love you. So he says, my beloved brothers, don't forget how much I love you. And then he says this, listen. You remember the old commercial, if you're older like me? Remember E.F. Hutton? Remember that commercial? What did it say? E.F. Hutton, when, when he talks, people listen, and then the whole quiet, the commercial goes really quiet. I think that's what James would want his church to do. He says, listen to me. I'm not talking about investment banking. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the community. I want you to really, really hear, and he's big on, remember, quick to hear. So I want you to listen, but when he says listen, I don't want you just to hear it in one ear and go out the other and go out of here this morning and be the same way you were. No, when he says listen, I want you to hear this, and then I want you to do something about it. So he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has, and here's the third rhetorical phrase, right? Has not God, verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Hasn't he done that? God says, and the answer is yes. 
James is not saying that salvation is for poor people and rich people can't have it. What he's saying is, as Jesus said throughout all the Gospels, that it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And that's why in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, he says, you know what rich people should exalt in? That they've been made low. That God worked in them to humble them because it's very difficult for rich people who have everything, power and clout, to humble themselves and actually think they need anyone, even God. So what we boast in as a rich person is God has worked in me to get me to the place I am low enough to receive it. And that's why the church for all of its centuries has been primarily made up of lower class people. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the ones who are the most important. That's not how God, look at the verse, God has chosen the poor. Why? Because they're most receptive to it. But they may be poor externally, and they may not have any glory on the outside. But the Bible says, here's what God says he looks at. They are rich in faith. They're rich in faith. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, he's talking to a bunch of people who live in a very rich town, but they're not rich themselves. And he wants to tell them that you are very rich. And here's the two phrases. The riches of his grace and the riches of his glory. See, those are the kind of riches that every child of God can have, no matter whether you're wealthy in this world or not. In Jesus, in the gospel, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who had all these barns, and they were filled, and they were overflowing, and he wanted to build bigger barns. And God said, you're so foolish, because this night your soul will be required of you, and who will be those things? And then he ends with this little statement. He says, and so are they who are not rich toward God. See, Jesus knows that there are two types of riches, material riches and spiritual riches, and too often people are judging people by the wrong one. They judge people because they have material riches, but they could be absolutely empty and void of spiritual riches, and they look, think that this is better than this, and Jesus says, no, it's the complete opposite of that. We don't treat people based on what they have, but who they have in their lives. It's not the riches of gold, but riches of grace and riches of glory that matters most, Jesus says. See, that's who I have watched. That's who I've made heirs of the kingdom. See what he says? I haven't chosen the ones that everybody else thinks. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Has not God chosen? He hasn't chosen many mighty. He hasn't chosen many noble. He hasn't chosen many powerful people in this world, but he's chosen the poor of this world. That's what the Bible says. Paul says that's who he cho chooses. Why? Because they get what matters most. They get what matters. And so Jesus says, because when you get it, I honor you. I give you the greatest privilege. You become an heir in the kingdom. In other words, everything that Jesus has is yours, he says. And you know what that looks like? Because you might be saying, Pastor Walker, am I an heir of the kingdom? Or here's what he says. An heir of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. Now that is the exact phrase James 1.12 said. We've already heard this once. To those who love, promise to those who love him. See, listen, the expression of a non-fiction faith, put it together, connects two things. Do you have them this morning? Watch. It connects vertically your love for God, promise to those who love him, and your love for people, because I don't show partiality. See, it's hearing and doing. It's being and doing. It's loving God 
and loving people. It's both of them, just what Sandy's saying today. That's a true faith. A true faith, one that James 1.12, when he says promises to those who love him, you'll get the crown of life. And this verse, he says, promise to those who love him are heirs of the kingdom. They're the same thing. When you're the heir of the kingdom, you'll get a crown of life. It means you really know God. You really have salvation. And it's not people who come to church and say, oh God, I love you so much, but you're such favorite, but you're, you're a racist. Or you're someone who judges people because of their money or their clout. See, you can't put those together, James says. They're incompatible. You can't say, oh, I love God and he's made me an heir, but look how you think about and act toward people. You can't do that, he says. Because a nonfiction faith has both. Verse six, in contrast, says this. See the word but? See, you should be honoring the poor, but you don't. And in an honor and shame culture, this is huge. Verse 6 says, but you have dishonored. See the opposite? You've dishonored the poor man and are not, now last, this is the last not rhetorical phrases, ready? Are you not, do not the rich ones oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not, see, twice in a row, are they not, are they, see, aren't these, listen, this is how crazy it gets. People's thinking is so twisted about how you look at people and how you should respond to people and how much value they have based on all kinds of wrong things that the people they end up honoring are the ones that God would say he dishonors. And the people that they dishonor, the poor people, are the one that God honors. See, it is diametrically opposed. And, 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 and listen, this is how the world functions by and large. And this is why we are so easy to succumb to world thinking because the world thinks this is how you look at people and this is how you treat them. And God says, absolutely not. And God says, this is how you look at people and this is how you treat people. And the world says, absolutely not. And what God honors, they dishonor. And what God would dishonor, they honor. And there is no middle ground. And he uses honor and dishonor in the world because he wants you to say, listen, when you think the way I do, you will honor and value things the way I do. God does not value your skin color over your relationship with him. He doesn't. It is much more important to be a Christian than it is to be white or black or any other color. It is far more important to be Christian than it is to be rich or wealthy or any of those things. It is far more important to be Christian than it is to be a walker or whatever your last name may be. That's the way he values things. That's what he honors. But he says, you don't do either. Aren't the people that you're honoring and giving all the preference to, aren't they the ones that drag you into the courts? See, you honor them, but they dishonor you. And watch this. Not only do they dishonor you, which is crazy, but they dishonor God. He says, and don't they blaspheme for some, the, the, the worthy, honorable name by which you are called? See, we get it all backwards. And let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you take your cues from the world, and you take your cues from social media, and you take your cues from the news or from the liberal media or literature out there that completely goes against what God says, you're dishonoring him. You're siding with people who are the enemy. You're siding with people who stand antithetical in their thinking and their valuing from God. And it's possible this morning that that could be some of God's people. And here's what he says, Christian over culture, 
Christian over color, Christian over country, Christian over cash, Christian over everything. Because, can I say to this? Because the answer to discrimination is identification. What do you mean, Pastor Walker? Let me close. He says, don't they blaspheme the worthy or honorable name by which you are called? By which you are called? You know what you're called? Number one, Christian. What is the worthy name? You know what it is? The name we started with, Jesus, who is the glory. See, your number one identity, hear me, your number one identity is Jesus. It is who he is. That determines who you are and how you treat other people and how you look at them. He says that is the identity that we have. See, when you get saved, you get a radically new identity. And when you get a new identity, you get a new thinking and a new living that goes with it. And the question is, does that show up in your life? Is that how you view people, or have you become a judge? Have you become superior, all on the wrong humanistic way of thinking that is dishonoring to God? James says that is incompatible with a nonfiction faith. Faith Baptist Church, we are to be and need to be a community of disciples who love God supremely and others sacrificially, and it's not based on what they can give to us It's not on the basis of us making much of them, but them and us making much of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Forgive us for partiality or favoritism in any of the forms that it takes. We are to be a different kind of people than those who don't know you in our culture because we have a different identity Our identity is being in Christ. Jesus, you are our identity. And now we need to live it out. Give us a stronger faith and a greater humility to rightly represent the Lord of glory. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.